Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. And what do we have up for today, Alex? Well, this week we've got an exciting episode. We're going to be talking all about Fox News versus MSNBC and the way that they cover the exact same news event of Michael Cohen being convicted uh, on numerous accounts of, you know, wire fraud, bank fraud, things like that. And the way that Fox News, specifically Sean Hannity's show, they try really hard to sort of disassociate the viewer from the events and uh, sort of talk about how Cohen, um, even if you should care about this story, probably deserved it anyway, and we should all focus on the unfair treatment of Michael Flynn. Whereas on MSNBC, uh, widely regarded um, by, you know, a lot on the right as being, you know, far left-leaning and very biased, they spend a lot of time, Rachel Maddow does, uh, uh, strongly associating you into the courtroom and into the the hearing and the whole proceeding and really does a a very in-depth play-by-play of the events in the courtroom. And it's really fascinating to see the two ways that uh, these news stations can cover the exact same event. And so with that, let's get started and listen to uh, the first part of, of Sean Hannity where you know, they almost cover it as if it's a secondary news story and, and sort of bury it later into uh, the show. So here's him sort of introducing the news for the night. First, we do have updates on the Mueller partisan witch hunt. Today, Michael Cohn, he was sentenced to three years in prison after he pled guilty to tax evasion, making false statements on a bank loan application, lying to Congress about building a building project that never even got off the ground and a questionable campaign finance violation. Notice something missing? No Trump-Russia collusion. None. Again, it's also important to note, Michael Cohn does not have a cooperation agreement with federal prosecutors. And meanwhile, tonight, another top target of this Mueller witch hunt, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, is asking a federal judge for leniency and no jail time. He pleaded guilty to lying to investigators, but only after legal bills wrecked his family finances, forced this man, 33-year veteran, five years of combat, to have to sell his home and probably was most likely threatening punitive action against his son and his business partner. He fell on the sword like probably 99% of fathers would do. And tonight we are learning some disgusting new details surrounding how Lieutenant General Michael Flynn was treated by top federal officials. Now, according to Flynn's sentencing request, then Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe pressured then National Security Advisor Flynn not to have a lawyer present during a seemingly relaxed, oh, casual meeting with the FBI. 
the one that they said he lied at, except nobody believed he lied. Flynn agreed to sit down without attorneys present and was then subsequently charged with lying during that very meeting. Now, keep in mind, Andrew McCabe was ultimately fired from the FBI for him lying to the Bureau, and he is currently facing no charges. According to FoxNews.com, Flynn's filing also seemingly demonstrates that the FBI took a significantly more aggressive tack in handling the Flynn interview than it did during other similar matters. For example, quote, no one interviewed during the FBI's Clinton email investigation was hit with false statement charges. Though investigators believed those witnesses were untruthful. Big difference. And so we, as we now know, that is called the two-tiered justice system. And by the way, this might be part of the worst part of Flynn's political persecution. The agents interviewing Flynn, they never thought he lied. That is a, a such a miscarriage of justice and an abuse of power corruption scandal, one of the biggest in American history, as we've been telling you. And of course, you're not likely to hear about any of this on any other media, especially over at Conspiracy TV, MSNBC especially not on the liberal Morning Joe show, where the hosts literally spend hours every single day trying to outdo themselves, you know, trading insults about Donald Trump and the Trump family and anybody associated with Trump. Wow. OK, now we're now we're really, you know, getting into it and we we hear the spin. OK, the spin has begun. Right. So. Hannity, Sean Hannity spends here, you know, really just a few sentences talking about um, uh, Cohen. And, you know, he says, well, there was a questionable campaign finance violation. He was, you know, building something that never got built. And then he just says, you know, notice something missing. No Trump collusion with Russia. It's like a party line, right? It's like, okay, let's let's say that again. Let's really, you know, hammer that in. And so, you know, he says that in a way where he's really just saying those key points. And then as though nothing had happened, he just changes the topic. Another story here today about Michael Flynn. And he starts talking about Flynn and he starts talking about how uh, he was lying, but not really lying because the FBI was more aggressive with him than with Hillary Clinton in the email scandal. And of course, the agents thought that he never lied. And that means that it's a miscarriage of justice. And we now know, listen to this phrase, right? We now know that this is known as the two-tiered justice system. So we now know. Who knows that? Okay. It's like my buddy just told me this. Well, we now know this. No, just someone said it. Yeah, he really, you know, lays on the metaphor, too. We've got this this veteran, Michael Flynn, falling on the sword. And meanwhile, you've got Cohen, who is this scummy lawyer that sort of almost like he's he's getting what he deserves. But they're going to talk about a more important issue. That's this veteran who's caught up in this partisan Mueller witch hunt. And um, it's really fascinating the way he he sets this up here just in the first few minutes of his show. And then they take a break and then they stop for, you know, another five, six minutes and talk about other things before they finally get back to talking about Cohen again. And here you can hear it in the next minute here. All right. We have a lot to get to tonight, including our interview with the First Lady. Joining us now, the author of the bestseller, Why We Fight, Fox News National Security Strategist, Sebastian Gorka, and the author of another bestseller of the deep state fox news contributor jason chaffetz i read this about general flynn okay michael cohen admitted to these things i feel sorry for him and his family tonight but he admitted to these acts that he was responsible for 
he's changed his position on a lot of issues. Now the media, they only want to believe the version that helps their narrative. Right. That's fine. That's politics. But he was pushed into General Flynn, a 33-year war hero, five years in combat, forced in, told you don't need a lawyer. The FBI doesn't believe he lied. And then he's charged with lying anyway because he's bankrupt, can't fight it, and they're threatening probably his kid. This is classic entrapment, Sean. If you listen to the testimony of the two FBI agents who don't think he was lying, if you look at what we now know about McCabe, who said, you don't need a lawyer, General Flynn. This is just an innocuous discussion. And then what do they do? They trap him in a process crime. Sean, everybody watching this show right now could be trapped in a process crime. I don't care how much of a Boy Scout you've been, everybody has a faulty memory. And you say one thing on Monday when you think you're in a friendly discussion with some fellow patriots, you think FBI agents, and then a week later, two weeks later, you, you remember it differently, that's it. You've committed a felony because you have, quote unquote, lied to a federal agent. That's entrapment of, of General Flynn. And then we compare this to a man who secretly taped his conversations with his client. Think about that. Michael Cohen admitted he's a liar and he's the kind of guy who has no qualms. The most sensitive thing a lawyer has is his relationship with his client. That exclusivity, that confidentiality. This man taped conversations with who knows how many clients. One of them is now the president of the United States. Uh, I know which man I believe and it's General Flynn. I worked for him in transition. I worked with him in the White House. He is a patriot, Sean. Wow. Okay. So 11 minutes into the show, they finally start talking about Cohen, the biggest news by far. And they only talk about him in relation to Michael Flynn. And then here we're starting to talk about, you know, how Michael Flynn, you know, is this great war hero who did all these, you know, wonderful, you know, things to protect our country. And then Michael Cohen, who is this scummy lawyer, who knows how many other clients he taped. I know who I'd trust. This man is a patriot. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the golden thing here is, is Sean Hannity saying, I feel sorry for Michael Cohen. I feel sorry for him. No, <laughs> you got to put this in context, right? How many people does Sean Hannity really feel sorry for? You know, does he actually have compassion or empathy for? I, I feel sorry for him, but he admitted. But then it's like, okay, he admitted, and he says that a couple of times. Uh, but then he goes on to basically say, hey, he didn't really admit anything, you know, because then we start talking about Flynn and then we start talking about this guest that he has on talks about the entrapment. And, you know, it's like you could be a Boy Scout, but you've got faulty memory. And if you've got faulty memory, then you could forget things and then you say it a different way. And without knowing it, you commit a felony. <laughs> it's like that's not the way these things work. Right. That's that's not the way that this is actually structured. Right, and he uses this line that everybody watching this show could be caught up in a process crime. Sort of taking that uh, that frame and applying sort of Michael Flynn's situation to anybody who's watching the show. Yeah, anyone could be caught up in this. Like, you're just an average Joe, and you could be, you know, caught up in this, which triggers those buttons of safety, of security. Hey, people want to be safe, and it's this kind of conspiracy mentality. Hey, the FBI is coming for you. They're going to entrap you in the, in your statements, and if you believe things that um, that they don't want to hear, well, they're going to be more aggressive with you than they were in with Hillary Clinton. 
right? It's this idea of someone is out to get you, and even if you're telling the truth, you're not telling the truth because you just might not remember it exactly right. And, you know, this whole idea of memory being the thing that is, that is you know, failing here um, is such a distortion of the facts, right? It's a, it's a distortion. It's another idea of, hey, what people say doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what they say because they can always just say later, hey, I remembered it wrong, right? But that, that of course, opens up to a huge distortion in the justice system and in, in truth finding. Right, and that really leads up to the next point here where uh, in the next clip you'll hear Sean Hannity start talking about you know how he can sort of relate to FBI and law enforcement by bringing up his family and the service members in his family and uh, he sort of uses that as a way to say, you know, hey, I don't dislike law enforcement, um, but here's all the terrible things that they're doing that they could even get you. Um, so let's listen to that part here. You know, I, I, I don't. Uh, Jason Chavitz, you are like me. We've talked about that. My mom was a prison guard. My dad had family court probation. So many people in the NYPD. So two guys made it to the FBI. Deity in my family. They were the highest of the high. Naturally, we are inclined, we want to help our FBI. But if you're in a situation now and you want to help them and you're risking, if you don't remember something properly, remember he was illegally surveilled, illegally unmasked, they didn't use minimization, and they leaked raw intelligence on this man. Nobody cares about the crimes that were committed where they literally had the transcript. So anything that's not perfectly matched up in an interview to the transcript means that's a lie. That's how they're going to view it. 33 years. This is how we're going to treat this man and tell him, advise him, don't have a lawyer. What does that tell people that instinctively, like us, want to help our FBI? Not these corrupt officials at the top, rank and file, good field office FBI agents that are are protecting this country. Well, look, uh, my grandfather was a career FBI agent. Uh, We have a great affinity for the FBI, but the upper echelon, it is now well documented, the bias and the animus that they had. And we have a a great deal of thanks for General Flynn. And you're right, 33 years of service. What's also very striking to me, though, Sean, is the difference in the way justice was played out, because I was a very key player in what was going on in trying to get to the truth with Hillary Clinton in her email and the transfer of classified information to a non-classified setting, putting people's lives in danger. I mean, real lives in danger. And yet the five people around Hillary Clinton, they all got immunity agreements with no requirement to cooperate with the government, no ability for us, say, in Congress or the the inspector general's office to make sure that we could go back and get the truth about them. And then you contrast how the FBI was acting with Flynn and Cohen and others, and it just doesn't feel like justice is balanced. You ever watch one of those uh, daytime soap operas and it's like you've walked into this giant uh, story that spans, you know, epic ages of families doing this and that and all of these facts and you have to really have been watching all along to know you know exactly what they're talking about right sometimes watching fox news is like that where they're compounding and building and pyramiding on all of these i hate to say conspiracy theories but a lot of these um sets of facts that they're repeating to their audience every night and building on you know these stories of uh sort of democratic wrongdoing 
that then they uh, are able to bring up and reference um, so uh, flippantly, so so uh, so much in passing that it's almost assumed that you know about all of these terrible acts that they refer to. Um, it's really interesting that that while these facts might be questionable, they're almost referred to as if they are 100% fact. And then the listener, you know, because they might not be familiar with this, just assumes, oh, yeah, I should know about this. This actually happened. Yeah. And, you know, we hear here as he's talking about how Flynn was illegally surveilled, illegally, tra- you know, illegally tracked. And it's that idea of, hey, the FBI is doing something wrong. And of course, it's not the good rank and file of the FBI that you need to be concerned with, because those are the people who you know, right? <laughs> so th- this is the, you know, again, getting back to that safety and security thing, right? Like if you meet an FBI agent on the street, that's not the guy to be you know, mad at. That's a formal law enforcement officer, right? That's a that's a person who is actually working to protect this country. We're not unless really they're investigating up- Trump. Yeah, right. We're not really upset with that person. We're upset with the corrupt officials at the top of the FBI. And you know who exactly are those corrupt officials? Well, it's anyone who is involved in these you know scandals that get reported on you know, Fox News or who come out. And of course, you know, it might not just be Fox News. It's covering this. We got to be balanced as we say that. Um, but, you know, it's anyone who comes out and who might have been involved in the Hillary Clinton email, you know, scandal, who might have been involved in some of these other things that conservative bases don't like. And those are the FBI agents who all of a sudden they they start this this theory of the FBI is somehow contaminated. There's an anti-conservative bias at the FBI. There's an anti-conservative bias at Facebook. There's an anti-conservative bias in the media, right? There is a war right now on conservatives. This is the the thinking that goes on. There's a war on coal, like right, we heard in that NPR segment, right? This is the thinking that's that's coming through is I'm under attack. They're attacking me. They're not telling the truth. There's a conspiracy going on. And the only one who's going to tell you the truth is, you know, Sean Hannity and, you know, not like conspiracy TV, MSNBC, right? It's not like that. Uh, But he's going to be telling you the truth, which, of course, is filtered through his, you know, way of thinking about it and his, his way of saying it. But, you know, the thing about this is, is we listen to Sean Hannity, um, he is not covering everything there is to cover, for example, about Cohen. You know, he he says a couple of words about it and then, you know, they're heavily slanted, heavily biased, heavily framed about, well, Cohen's not really a bad guy. Flynn's not really a bad guy. Sure, these people are ending up in our justice system and they're actually being prosecuted, right? But they're not really bad people. And the reason they're not bad people is because they're being entrapped they're being framed, they're being illegally surveilled, they are being lied to, they're being you know, questioned in a way where their honest intentions are being distorted. And unfortunately, that's just not in alignment with the facts of how this is all you know, going down. That, that's not what's happening, right? This, this whole idea that these people are being caught up in this web and, oh, they're just good people, but they can't help it. Well, you know, maybe, but then maybe they really did have bad intentions and all of their intentions now are because they want all of what they're saying now about it is because they just want to save themselves. 
And notice at the end, you know, he lists off a bunch of facts, um, quote unquote, about the cases, but then ends with the statement, it just doesn't feel like justice is balanced. And what's happening right there is that that's then no longer an appeal to logic. It's appealing to the feeling. And after you list off all of these unfair, quote unquote, things that are happening, all of these people that you like being treated unfairly, you're not feeling very good. And then when you're prompted to think about how you're feeling about justice, you're not feeling very good. And so you're inclined to agree with that. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like the justice is being granted. But again, this is on a feeling level. It's it is not necessarily having to do with the actual truth or the facts of the situation. And we know that a person's viewpoint, the frame in which they see the world is going to be filtered by the news sources that they are aware of and they watch. And of course, that's how we here on Subliminally Correct, we're continually talking about how people are being persuaded every single day. So let's get to the next clip. And this one is really where he sort of concludes it all by talking about the injustice, the unfairness of the Obama administration and sort of the different agencies who are all colluding and working together to treat all of these people very unfairly. I think the biggest story is still out there, and that's the unmasking. I mean, we've talked about, what, for, for six minutes about General Flynn, a patriot who was trapped by a political use of the intelligence community and law enforcement. We know there are hundreds of Americans who are unmasked by the Obama administration. Why? At because a they 300% wanted... increased rate. Right. And then in what 2016. happened just before the inauguration, the president says, oh, let's share all of this intelligence with seven times as many agencies as we did before, because who knows, maybe we can bring down the presidency. That's what we're talking about. The politicized use, the weaponization of the intelligence community, and potentially hundreds of Americans are affected, Sean. You know, and, and let's, let's stay on that, because if we really cared about Russian influence in the election, which has now evolved into, well, Donald Trump may have committed a felony campaign finance violation with no lawyer is ever going to buy into, intelligent lawyer, that is, right. except for these crazy, dumb TV pundits that are way overpaid and just incendiary in their hatred for two years of Donald Trump. So the question is, are we really going to allow somebody who paid for Russian influence with funneled money, interestingly, campaign finance violation, perhaps, to a law firm, laws, legal expense, not true, foreign national, Russian lies, fed to the American people, influence the election, and money kickback in the uranium deal that was signed off on. You can't tell me that, th that this is about Russia, because if it was about Russia, we would be after these issues. They're not after them. It's just like they only cared about Kavanaugh if he did something inappropriate, wrong. But they didn't care about Keith Ellison or Michael Avenatti. They didn't they didn't jump the gun in those cases, which means they really just care about the politicizing of these issues. Isn't that what it's about? Yeah. Look, if you if you were serious about this, you would go look at Mark Elias. He was general counsel uh, with uh, the DNC. He advised the DCCC. He was involved with Hillary Clinton. He was involved with the campaign. He was involved with Perkins Coie, and he was also involved um, with the, the, the Panetta group. And so all of those ties, millions of dollars going overseas to, to attract this money. But you don't even get the sense that anybody is even sniffing into this. 
I, and it's just, that's where people, I just think, are losing trust, have lost trust in the justice system because that was fundamentally wrong. It's millions of dollars spent to affect an election by engaging a foreign entity and foreign foreigners to in, be involved in that campaign. Um, there's so much that's, material out there. And then you hear Mark Meadows talking about how they have whistleblowers on Uranium One and they pass those on to the Department no, no, of Justice I, and I nobody even the whistleblower. talks to them. He literally was yeah. within Putin's network in America, referred to Robert Mueller, yeah. the FBI director, blackmail, money laundering, corruption, kickbacks, yeah. bribery, all these things. Last word, Dr. Gorka. The president could pardon General Flynn, and he'd make a great chief of staff, don't you think? <laughs> and here we see them talking about a patriot trapped by the system that Obama set up where Obama is, you know, uh, increasing the unmaskings by 300% and sharing them with seven times as many agencies. You hear these comparative deletions here. We have no idea what the rate was beforehand. We have no idea how many more agencies, seven times more agencies. I mean, if it was one agency, then that's just seven agencies. We don't really know any of this or if these facts are actually true or not. They're, they're, they're spit out in such a rapid fire uh, scenario that uh, it's often assumed to be fact. Yeah. And they talk about here, you know, the biggest story out there, it's the unmasking. You know, it's, it's like Jim Carrey and the mask. It's the unmasking. And what they're talking about here is the revealing of the subject of who was surveilled in a, in a Pfizer or foreign intelligence warrant. And but when you hear that, that's that's another one of those references. OK, the unmasking. What exactly you know does that mean? And uh, you hear here, you know, um, you hear Sean Hannity talking about these crazy, dumb TV pundits overpaid their incendiary <laughs> hatred of Donald Trump, which is just just a little bit of an emotional characterization, which also is like him. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So and, and then what I really love about this clip is that right in the middle of it, he just starts like going on this kind of rant, just like two words describing all of these different things foreign nationals, Russia influence, influencing our election, <laughs> the uranium deal, bribery, kickbacks. He just says like all of these trigger words, you know, just like listing them a sequence of another. And this is what's called a linkage statement, right? When a person says this and this and this and this, or even if the, they omit the word and, and it's just kind of an implied comma, what the brain says is, hey, these all belong together. And so when he's saying all of these different things, he's amplifying an emotional state. These are anchors or triggers that when, a, when he says them, those words trigger up an emotional state. And the more of the words he says, the more that emotional recollection or remembrance comes back of that particular emotional state, taps into it, the person feels it, and then he makes his next statement. And what's his next statement? Well, he's talking about this idea of being within Putin's network in America. <laughs> I, I, I don't know where it gets us. Putin's network in America. That's, that's pretty good. And, you know, he talks about how um, they didn't really care about Brett Kavanaugh until, you know, he did something wrong. They, did, they cared about Kavanaugh, but they didn't care about Michael Avenetti. 
right? Like that's an appropriate, you know, comparison. But, you know, we hear that that thing. And so when he says it so fast, when he says it so quickly and with such a vigor and, you know, such emotionality to it, that really it sort of makes sense at an emotional level. Of course, Brett Kavanaugh was being elected to be a Supreme Court justice. Michael Avenetti is kind of a lawyer who wants his claim to fame through suing people, you know, who are in the who are in the the uh, highlight of the day, right? No comparison whatsoever. And I guess in Sean Hannity's mind, they do have a comparison, though. Now we're going to get to this next segment where we're going to be talking about Rachel Maddow. And of course, if you find yourself, you know, as you're listening to this, if you're a person who is more on the right-leaning spectrum, meaning you're more conservative, you might think that Rachel Maddow really covers this in a very biased or slanted way, right? Um, Listen to it. Listen to the different ways that this is being framed, right? Listen to the difference between Sean Hannity's approach. You know, the, the number one is the length of time that's actually being, you know, talked about here. And how it's being framed here on MSNBC, which of course has much more of a liberal base. And just hearing some of the persuasive elements that, you know, that are here that are being talked about. So let's go ahead and listen to this next clip and we're going to go ahead and break it down. Michael Cohen today was sentenced to three years in federal prison for his role in multiple federal crimes, including two campaign finance felonies, in which prosecutors and the judge today uh, said he was in cahoots with the President of the United States in committing those crimes. And I, and I know everybody today was sort of uh, making, you might have seen either in the, in, the news, in the newspaper or online today, a lot of people making charts about all the people in the President's orbit who have confessed to felonies and are maybe awaiting sentencing or are heading off to prison. But honestly, as we're thinking about the President's, president's whole political orbit, Um, either planning to go to prison or going to prison. Honestly, just spare a thought for the Republican Party, too. I mean, it's not like the infection that seems to be spreading out from the president is confined just to Trump world. He's brought all the best people into the upper echelons of the formal Republican Party, too. And then they all have to quit when they get caught or when they go to prison. Today was a big day, obviously, and we're going to go through... We're going to go through some of what happened today in a couple of parts. Where we're going to land, I'll tell you right now, is on what appears to be potential legal jeopardy for the president's company and specifically for the president's oldest children on the felony counts in which Michael Cohen himself, federal prosecutors in New York, and now a federal judge in New York have all said the president was involved in. And there's a lot of questions that are raised by Michael Cohen's sentencing today and, and the way it went down, and we'll get to some of those over the course of this hour. To me, there are still some things that don't make sense necessarily about Michael Cohen's defense and his approach to this case. We will talk about that tonight with two people who have been in communication with him extensively uh, and have some insight into his defense. But let's talk first um, specifically about what went down in court today and why it looks like the president's business and his eldest children might be in the legal crosshairs heading out of today. All right. So we've listened to Sean Hannity. We've listened to that, you know, Fox News segment talking about this from a very right wing perspective. And now we're getting a sense of how the left is interpreting this. And also how it's being interpreted persuasively. Okay. And so Rachel Maddow's, you know, starting statement here definitely has a lot of persuasion in it, right? So a federal judge says 
You know, Michael Cohen was sentenced to three years. The federal judge has said that he was, quote, in cahoots with the president in committing those crimes. And then she says again, you know, prosecutors, Cohen himself, a judge all said that the president was involved in this, which is, you know, that is a favorable interpretation of it toward this idea that uh, the president and Michael Cohen were, you know, doing this together. And and yet that wasn't exactly what they said. She is framing it a little bit, you know, changing a little bit of the meaning. And one of the things that uh, she does here to make it more persuasive is she starts talking about going back to this idea of metaphor, right? All the pe- people are making charts on the Internet. They're making charts about all the people in the president's orbit. And she says this a couple of times. The president's whole political orbit is either planning to go to prison or going to prison. And again, it's a little bit persuasive, right? It's saying, hey, everyone that Donald Trump is associated with is in prison or going to prison. And, you know, that's not really true. Okay, it's not really it's not really true that everyone is that way. But this is what she's trying to put the idea. And she's saying that, hey, if you're associated with Donald Trump, that means prison. Donald Trump equals prison. We heard from Sean Hannity that whole um, equally bare bone type of notion of, hey, what's missing here? No collusion with Russia. Right. He said it in that way. Now, Maddo is saying, hey, Trump equals prison. That's what he actually means. Right. And you'll hear, you know, more of that metaphor right there. What really just stood out to me was the infection is isn't confined to Trump world. It's all Republicans. And, you know, right there, you're sort of getting that imagery of of an infection of something that's, you know, spreading to the entire political orbit that's going to prison. And, you know, you really see this here as a contrast to that Fox News to Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity was out there trying to, you know, segment segment out the people in Trump's orbit that, you know, Cohen was, you know, just a lawyer and a scummy one and he's fine going to prison, but Flynn was a good one and we need to believe and trust him. And, you know, Maddow's sort of just zooming out here and saying, it doesn't matter what they did or who they are or what's going on. They were related to Trump and now they're going to prison Therefore, um, you know, uh, it's causing that that Trump equals prison, that, you know, Trump is doing bad, terrible things through like guilty by association. Now, there's no proof that Trump actually did anything yet, really. But uh, sort of drawing those connections, saying that everybody around him is going to prison. Therefore, you know, he's a bad guy is, you know, a little bit of a leap in logic right there. Yeah, there's no proof of it yet. And what happens is that a lot of people on the left are kind of making some assumptions. You know, you could debate whether they are qualified assumptions or not, but they're making assumptions to say, hey, um, Donald Trump was associated with Russia. He did have collusion. This was, you know, what happened. But it's kind of taking some little fact and then it is broadening from that fact. This is what's called the composition fallacy. It's taking a small fact and then assuming that that's going to remain true across the whole sequence, across the whole broader sample of it. And so it's actually saying, hey, we have this little bit of information. We're going to make it mean this big thing, which does appeal to and inspire her base. Is it exactly true? You know, maybe not. Then again, 
you know, she's not completely, you know, untrue because this guy did just confess to um, basically, you know, influencing 2016 election to camp breaking campaign finance laws with, you know, individual one who, as we're going to be, you know, hearing about here is the president of the United States. But she's framing here Trump as this disease that's spreading, right? It's not just him, but it's his business. It's all Republicans that he's associated with. It's all, it's all of his kids, well, his eldest children at least, that are all part of this kind of orbit that's going to prison. And, you know, what's also implied by this is, hey, if you're voting for her, him or you're with him or you're supporting him, you might be going to prison too. You might be part of that infection or that disease or that thing that's spreading. And so you don't want to do that. You want to get back on the other side. Now, in this next clip, we're going to be hearing from Rachel Maddow. Uh, she's really taking some of the transcriptions of court and she's just breaking it down. And this is really interesting because she's going to be giving it as a play by play, kind of like a sports game, right? Associating people in the room. She's going to be doing some framing and she's going to be doing it with her voice tone and how she reads it. And then also pay attention to sometimes she's going to be reading exactly what they are saying in the court transcript, but sometimes she's going to be inserting her own framing or overview of it, which makes it a little bit persuasive. So let's take a listen to this. All right, let's start in court. At the very start of the proceedings, uh, the deputy clerk calls the case, uh, announces this is the case, case number. Uh, the attorneys on all three sides... They all introduce themselves to the judge. Uh, that's the lawyers for the federal prosecutor's office in the Southern District of New York. Also, the prosecutors from the special counsel's office, led by Robert Mueller, and also the defense lawyers representing Michael Cohen. So two different sets of prosecutors and the defense for Cohen. The judge, quote, good morning to all of you, and I note the presence of the defendant, Mr. Cohen, at the counsel table. This matter is on for sentencing. Are the parties ready to proceed? Nick Roos for Southern District of New York says, yes, Your Honor. Guy Petrillo for Michael Cohen's defense says, yes, Your Honor. Jeannie Ree for the Special Counsel's Office says, yes, Your Honor. And then the judge says, Mr. Petrillo, do you wish to be heard on behalf of Mr. Cohen? Guy Petrillo says, I do, Your Honor. Thank you. May it please the court, Your Honor. My partner, Amy Lester, and I have had the privilege of representing Michael Cohen and the honor of having met some of the members of his family who are present here today in court. And then Guy Petrillo goes on to talk about the family members of Michael Cohen who are there. He also talks about the uh, letters of support that uh, he and his co-counsel have submitted to the court from people who like Michael Cohen or uh, who say that he's helped them in some way in the past. But, but pretty fast, right at the start of today's sentencing, Michael Cohen's defense lawyer goes right to the big picture, right to making the case to the judge for why Michael Cohen should be treated with mercy, uh, with, with, with thanks even from a grateful nation. Guy Petrillo, quote, unless your honor would like me to proceed otherwise, I would like first to address the remarkable nature and significance of the life decision made by Mr. Cohen to cooperate with the special counsel and the relevance and respectfully, the importance of that cooperation, not only to this specific man and your honor's evaluation of this specific man, but also to the court's consideration of how Mr. Cohen's cooperation promotes respect for law and the courage of the individual to stand up to power and influence. When Mr. Cohen authorized us to contact the special counsel's office in July, he did so to offer his relevant knowledge to the investigation, knowing that he would face, as a result, when his offer became public, a barrage of attack by the president. 
He knew that the president might shut down the investigation, and he knew that there might come a time when he would appear in court and there would be no special counsel to stand up for him, as there is today. He moved forward nonetheless. He came forward to offer evidence against the most powerful person in our country. He did so not knowing what the result would be, not knowing how the politics would play out, and not knowing whether the special counsel would even survive. Nor could he anticipate the full measure of attack that has been made against him, not only by the president, who continues to say that people like Mr. Cohen, who cooperate with the special counsel, are weaklings and that those who hold fast and clam up are heroes, but also attacks by partisans and by citizens who happen to be aligned with the president. And those attacks have included threats against him and his family. So respectfully, Your Honor, this is not a standard case of cooperation. The cooperation here should be viewed under a non-standard or in a non-standard framework. The special counsel's investigation is of the utmost national significance, no less than what was seen 40 plus years ago in the days of Watergate. In the light of that reality, respectfully, Your Honor, it is important that others in Mr. Cohen's position who provide assistance to this historic inquiry take renewed courage from this proceeding and that law enforcement and the promotion of respect for law also receive a boost from what happens here today. So that is how Michael Cohen's defense opens up. He stood up to power. He stood up to the most powerful person in the country in helping Robert Mueller, which Mueller absolutely says Cohen has done, Michael Cohen took a gamble. He believed the president could have killed off the Mueller investigation at any time, which would have left Michael Cohen with no one to vouch for the fact that he had tried to help. Michael Cohen should be treated leniently. If he is treated leniently, not only will that be the right thing to do by Michael Cohen, given his bravery, but it will give others the courage to also come forward to help, right? Very heady stuff. And then this, <laughs> the very next thing he does, this is when um, Cohen's defense lawyer throws a big spitball at the president's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, who, it should be noted, is also a felon. Quote, your honor, in this exceptionally important matter, Mr. Cohen's cooperation is overwhelmingly the factor we submit that should substantially mitigate his sentence. And his action stands in profound contrast to the decision of some others not to cooperate and allegedly to double deal while pretending to cooperate. You know who you are, Schmalsch Manafort? Right? Pretending to cooperate? And so this is really interesting because this is one of the most persuasive ways that Rachel Maddow often talks. She likes to do these big court proceedings or when there's a particularly you know, interesting live news event to give that back and forth that... Um, sort of play-by-play, uh, as Taylor had said, almost like that sports game to get people into the room. Um, now, what's interesting that I find right here is uh, is the imagery that she draws while she's talking. So she's as she's explaining what was actually said, she starts painting the picture uh, with her voice. One of the most memorable pieces that she said right there was when the lawyers got up to um, you know, spit a great big spitball um, into into uh, Manafort's face. That's really conjures up a lot of imagery right there and gets you really, you know, in, leaning in, associated and very interested in what she's going to be saying next, um, which makes it all that more persuasive. And we hear as she is describing this and as she is reading the words, 
her own vocal inflection. She doesn't overemphasize it. And I think this is why she has such a, a viewership and uh, people really listen to her is that she doesn't overemphasize it, but she does let everyone know she doesn't really believe this. Right. So he believes that he should be treated leniently, you know, and she kind of has this, um, this sound in her voice as though she doesn't really believe this is what is going to be coming forward that, you know, Cohen had the courage to come forward. And we hear, of course, the persuasion being done by Cohen's lawyers and how they're framing this whole thing, right? Cohen didn't know what would happen, but he did the right thing. He wasn't sure how the prosecutors would react. He wasn't sure how the president would react. He was in a very um, insecure place, but he did the right thing anyway. And so, you know, people have come up, partisans and citizens have come to threaten him uh, to take threats against his family. And so his cooperation should be viewed in a non-standard way. You know, it's kind of this idea of saying, hey, this guy's different because he has done this and this and this. You should give him much more of a uh, fair treatment. And Maddow doesn't really seem to believe this. Now, why do we know that she doesn't believe this? Because of her voice tone, because of how she says it, because of how she actually frames it. You know, we hear the lawyers bring back Watergate, right? And they, they say it was much like Watergate. And then the next thing they're saying there is, in light of that reality, this is true. So they present a concept. They lean on that a concept. They say they make an assumption about it. But then they turned it into a reality. It's like, hey, now Watergate is a reality. And because of that, they're painting Cohen as this whistleblower, this guy who really has been caught up in this you know, whole thing. And we're going to hear, uh, as we listen to the next segment, we're going to be hearing also how, um, how he himself is thinking of himself in, in this way. So let's go ahead and listen to this. This next part here is Cohen's statement right before sentencing. It is filled with persuasiveness. It is clearly something that was, you know, written ahead of time. Probably the lawyers wrote it for him, you know, is how this uh, actually played out. You're going to hear a lot of remorsefulness and apology and also some kind of quick little, you know, snips at the heels of some people who have been, you know, going after Cohen, specifically, you know, Donald Trump. So let's go ahead and take a listen to this. There's a lot to break down here in how Cohen is actually presenting himself and throwing himself on the ground in front of the judge. Quote, the judge, Mr. Petrillo, does your client wish to address the court before sentence is imposed? Mr. Petrillo, he does your honor. Mr. Cohen would like to be heard. The judge, fine. I'll hear from Mr. Cohen now. The defendant, Michael Cohen, your honor, stand here or to the podium? The judge, I think it would be best to take the podium. Michael Cohen, the defendant, thank you, Your Honor. I stand before Your Honor humbly and painfully aware that we are here today for one reason, because of my actions that I pled guilty to on August 21st and as well on November 29th. I take full responsibility for each act that I pled guilty to, the personal ones to me and those involving the President of the United States of America. Victor Frankl, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he wrote, there are forces beyond your control that can take away everything you possess except one thing, your freedom to choose how you will respond to the situation. Your Honor, this may seem hard to believe, but today is one of, but today is one of the most meaningful days of my life. The irony is today is the day I'm getting my freedom back. 
As you sit at the bench and you contemplate my fate, I have been living in a personal and mental incarceration ever since the fateful day that I accepted the offer to work for a famous real estate mogul whose business acumen I truly admired. In fact, I now know that there is little to be admired. I want to be clear. I blame myself for the conduct which has brought me here today, and it was my own weakness and a loyalty to this man that led me to choose a path of darkness over light. It is for these reasons I chose to participate in the illicit act of the president rather than to listen to my own inner voice, which should have warned me that the campaign finance violations that I later pled guilty to were insidious. Recently, the president tweeted a statement calling me weak, and he was correct, but for a much different reason than he was implying. It was because time and time again, I felt it was my duty to cover up his dirty deeds rather than to listen to my own inner voice and my moral compass. My weakness can be characterized as a blind loyalty to Donald Trump, and I was weak for not having the strength to question and to refuse his demands. I have already spent years living a personal and mental incarceration, which no matter what is decided today, owning this mistake will free me to be once more the person I really am. Now at this point, his statement goes on. At this point in his statement, Cohen makes what seems to be a quite heartfelt statement of love uh, for his family and his shame for having brought them so much pain by his actions and his crimes. Uh, this is in fact, Cohen says he didn't enter into a co cooperation agreement with federal prosecutors in New York in order to spare his family. And again, that's kind of an opaque thing. We will have more on that later. Um, but then this is how he closes his statement with him begging the judge for his consideration uh, with an apology or two or three, and him also bringing it all back to the president. Michael Cohen, quote, for months now, the president of the United States, one of the most powerful men in the world, publicly mocks me, calling me a rat and a liar, and insists that the court sentence me to the absolute maximum time in prison. Not only is this improper, it creates a false sense that the president can weigh in on the outcome of judicial proceedings that implicate him, Despite being vilified by the press and inundated with character assassinations over the past almost two years, I still stand today and I'm committed to proving my integrity and ensuring that history will not remember me as the villain of this story. I now know that every action I take in the future has to be well thought out and with honorable intention because I wish to leave no room for future mistakes in my life. And so I beseech your honor to consider this path that I am currently taking when sentencing me today. And I want to apologize to my entire family for what my, what my actions have put them through. My family has suffered immeasurably in the home and the world outside. I know I have let them all down. It will be my life's work to make it right and to become the best version of myself. Most of all, I want to apologize to the people of the United States. And at this point, Mr. Cohen tears up in his statement in court. He says, you deserve to know the truth and lying to you was unjust. I want to thank you, Your Honor, for all the time I'm sure you have committed to this matter and to the consideration that you have given my future. Again, I want to thank my family, my friends, many who are here today who are with me, especially all the people who wrote letters on my behalf. In addition, I would like to thank the tens of thousands of strangers who, despite not knowing me at all, not knowing me personally, have shown kindness and empathy in writing letters to me and offering support and prayer. And I thank you, Your Honor. I'm truly sorry. And I promise I will be better. The judge, you may be seated, Mr. Cohen. And so you see what happens right here is that dichotomy between Fox News and MSNBC, 
We've got MSNBC here. You just listened to it. They are trying really, really hard to associate you into the events that are happening right there. Um, to almost make you feel like you're there in the room to, to get you to pay as close attention to this story as you can by spending so much time and so much depth um, getting you in there in the moment. And what does Fox News do? It's them bringing you away from it, distracting from the Cohen event, and uh, tying you a little bit over to um, the Michael Flynn events. They're leaning back. They're leaning away from you know all of these events and trying to get you distracted from these events and almost playing it up as though you know Cohen is the nasty attorney and here Maddow is 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 sort of emphasizing um, the sympathy toward Cohen and his plight by by reading his entire statement right there you almost can't help but feel a little bit bad for the guy but she makes it so entertaining, you know, and this this is what makes her show popular is that she can take something as boring as a court transcript and read it word for word. And people will sit there for five minutes and listen to it. And it's because she will kind of slow down or rush through the parts that are kind of boring. But then when it really comes to something that she feels like needs a special a special vocal tone inflection. You know, she talks about, it, and at this point, Cohen tears up. You know, as if she's really making fun of him. Right? She's calling him inauthentic, but she doesn't have to say that. She says it through the way in which she is, you know, pronouncing the, uh, in the way in which she's describing it, in the way in which she's actually saying the words. So let's take a little bit here of really breaking down, you know, Cohen's statement because this is just, you know full of, you know, interesting stuff. It's like, okay, how, how did his lawyers actually, you know, think this was, you know, going to go? So he takes full responsibility and he wants to apologize, but he only takes so much responsibility because then he wants to blame Donald Trump, you know, for basically everything. So he takes responsibility except for Donald Trump. Um, I thought it was interesting. You know, he has this very strong reframing that's going through this whole thing, Right. Today is one of the most meaningful days of my life. Well, yeah, you bet. Um, today is the day I'm getting my freedom back. And, you know, again, does that make any sense? It only really makes sense because he's doing this reframing thing. So people kind of perk up and go, oh, wait, what does he mean by that? As you sit at the bench, this is pacing, by the way, as you sit at the bench and contemplate my fate, this is pacing. I have been living in a personal and mental incarceration. And so he's talking about how he's been in jail before he's in jail. And so he's trying to give this idea of, hey, I've already been in jail. I've already punished myself. You don't have to punish me. I've already been you know, doing this to myself. Um, but then, of course, he has to throw in the stuff about you know, Donald Trump. He talks about his family. He talks about shaming his family. And it will be his life's work you know, to make that up you know, to his uh, family. History will not remember me as the villain of this story. You know, it's, it's really interesting how he puts in this historical narrative. And if the lawyers didn't write this statement, then that really gives you an insight into how Cohen is viewing himself. He views himself as a kind of hero, you know, archetype, as someone who really was the good guy, you know, trying to do something uh, just and trying to do something, you know, proper. He talks about how the... Uh, president 
you know, calling him a rat and this and this is improper for court proceedings. Like you would think that would be the judge's, you know, ability to say whether it was improper or not. But Cohen himself says that, hey, this is this is improper. And then he has that promise that he will be better. Wait, and now my favorite part, though, was right then when he talks about the president going on social media and uh, calling him a rat and a liar. And then uh, he says that Trump is calling for the uh, court to give him the maximum sentence. But then he says the president doesn't actually have that power. That power belongs to you, like as if he could influence the court. So he sort of gets in that persuasive jabs by Mm -hmm. very slyly saying that the president wants you to give me the maximum sentence, but he doesn't have that power. You do. Yeah. And and again, he's like laying on the floor. He's he's doing very much this like you are you are the judge. You know, I submit myself to you. You are the judge. Do with me what you will, but be fair, be just because you are the the law and I have respect for the law. And, you know, again, this is a person who is in front of a court being sentenced to jail because he broke the law. And so his respect for the law only, of course, goes you know, so far. No, but he's almost daring the judge to do it, though, was was my reading, because he's saying that that Trump wants you to give me the maximum sentence. So you shouldn't give me the maximum sentence. Right. Yeah. It's like, hey, you you have to do your own thing here. And so he's really kind of pushing the judge up against, you know, some sort of some sort of uh, imagined wall there. I don't know if he wrote it himself. It sounds more like his lawyers actually wrote it. All right. So let's get on to this next clip here uh, where, and this is going to be the last clip, and this is Rachel Maddow going ahead and kind of summarizing it all together, you know, talking about what this is really kind of all about and how it's, you know, how how it's implicated and and, uh, really talking more and more about tying Trump and this whole orbit of Trump and how everyone around him is, uh, you know, the well is poisoned by, by his example. Let's take a listen to this one. Well, if prosecutors are nailing this down, who all is implicated in this illegal payment scheme? Well, Michael Cohen. They've got Michael Cohen now. He's going to prison for it. They've effectively named the president as his conspirator, right? But his co-conspirator in this felony. But maybe the president himself can't be indicted while he's, in, while he's president. Well, now we know as of today, they've told the media company that committed this crime with them that the media company is off the hook in exchange for their cooperation. Well. Is there anybody else potentially in trouble for this felony, given what prosecutors have now made public about the nature of this crime and what they know about it? Yeah. Yeah, as it turns out, yeah, there is someone else potentially in trouble here. And they don't have a non-prosecution agreement. And they don't have immunity. Because that's the president's company, and specifically the decision makers inside his company who would have had the authority in that company to help pull something like this off at the time that it happened during the campaign. And there appear to be five people who fit that bill, one of whom is the Trump Organization's financial chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. He has also reportedly been granted immunity by prosecutors in exchange for his assistance in this matter. And then the other four people who were inside the Trump organization at the time this felony was committed, who apparently would have had the authority within the company to make something like this happen. They happened to be four people who were employed as top executives at the Trump organization. 
who all have the same last name. All right, and here we hear her really summarizing it up and really building up that excitement, okay? What is it here that's going to happen in this narrative? You know, what is it about Donald Trump that, you know, brings him in here? Because, of course, we're talking about the Michael Cohen sentencing hearing. But she says they've named the president as his conspirator. You know, it almost sounds like the president is being indicted. And in fact, on her TV show, he is being indicted. Right. And then she says, um, is anyone else in trouble for this felony? And then she just kind of pauses. Right. And just hear these words. Right. Trouble. Felony. Right. She's not talking about it as a small thing. And then she says, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she repeats that again and again, um, and they don't have immunity, they don't have prosecution agreements, and she's kind of building up this, okay, what's she going to tell me next? Who is it? Who is it? Like, she, she's really kind of put us into this framework of, like, well, there's some people who are going to get in trouble for this felony, and we have this conspiracy between Cohen and the president, we have this, this uh, you know, talking to each other, and is there anyone else? Anyone else who's in who's involved in this? Well, yeah, there's five people. One of them is the head of the, the Trump thing. And then there's four others, and they all have the same last name. Hmm. I wonder what that last name could be. Yeah, you'll notice the way that she does it though is is like that. She's sort of following the natural uh, you know, progression of, of human conclusions. Um, you start off with uh, you know, all of these situations and then asking questions and then getting answers and asking questions and getting answers. And then you're left with that final question with the suspense and people will come to the conclusion before she finally tells them. And uh, it, it, it sort of mimics the way um, that the human thought process works. And so you essentially think that you came up with the conclusion that she's feeding you. Yeah. And, you know, she's she's talking about, hey, they have effectively named the president as his conspirator. And then she says, maybe he can't be indicted while he is president. But, right, and there's this kind of idea of, hey, as soon as this guy gets out of office, he's being indicted. And that that's an assumption where she doesn't have to, again, say it. She's saying it without saying it. She's implying it by this idea of, hey, everyone else around him is being convicted. He's the conspirator. He is, you know, tied up within this. We know all of these other things that have, have happened. And so definitely, you know, Donald Trump is a criminal here. That's what she's saying. She's saying Donald Trump is a criminal and he basically is going through trial himself. You see, and that's what's what's interesting about this, right? We have these two different news networks, you know, they're both covering it in different ways. Fox News, you know, largely has taken the slant, at least on Hannity, they've, they've largely taken the slant to say, uh, well, this doesn't really matter, right? Like, this isn't really about the president. This is about, uh, you know, FBI conspiracy toward actually, you know, unmasking things. It's about um entrapment it's about collusion it's about or you know lack of collusion it's about uh you know russia interfering or not interfering it's about the liberals actually sabotaging things and then you know msnbc takes the other tack where they say hey this is exactly about um the president so we're not even really talking about cohen yeah like yeah okay we understand like this guy did something wrong we find it pathetic and we find it this way and we find it that way 
Um, but you know, really what we're talking about is Donald Trump. We're really saying, Hey, how horrible, you know, Donald Trump is by being attached to this. Otherwise we wouldn't even be talking about it, right? It wouldn't even be talked on MSNBC. And so, you know, you have these two different news networks. One is on the right, you know, in favor for the party that's currently in the white house. The other one is on the left, not in favor of it. And so, of course, which one is going to spend the most time talking about the crimes being committed, the implications of them? Of course, Maddow is going to talk more about that. Fox News is going to disassociate from it and emphasize something else, which, you know, you got to be you got to have a lot of skill in order to, to, you know, completely not talk about something huge, you know, like that happening. And, you know, individual one and that and that whole thing. Well, I think that's about all the time we've got for today. Thanks uh, for listening this week. Remember that if you like the show, head on over to iTunes. Make sure to rate and review it five stars. And uh, if you head on over to Twitter, you can follow us at SubliminalPod. Remember to check out our Facebook feed. And until next week, we'll see you then. See you then. See you then.